Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley, and I'm her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi and I want to welcome you to Open to Hope Conversations, the podcast. We believe that the greatest gift you can give yourself after a loss is hope, using this moment to connect with others who have not only survived, but thrived. So let's get started. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host. Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, we are going to be talking about complicated grief following a suicide. I think this is such an important topic because, as you know, uh, working with people who've had a loss to suicide, it's a pretty unique area. And we have got a woman on today who's not only professionally, but personally understands the whole um, information around suicide. So I know this is going to be great for our listening audience. So would you like to introduce her, Heidi? Sure, I'd love to. Okay. Today, like you said, we're going to be talk, talking about complicated grief following a suicide and what it's like to not only survive, but thrive after a traumatic loss. Mm-hmm. And we have an expert here today and her name is Ronnie Susan Walker. And Ronnie Susan Walker is the founder and the executive director of the Alliance of Hope for Suicide Loss Survivors. He is a licensed clinical mental health counselor, and she lost her stepson Channing to suicide in 1995. Welcome to the show, Ronnie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. You are in such an important area, and talk a little bit first about uh, how you started the Alliance uh, of Hope for Suicide, why you started it, how you started it. I've been working with suicide loss survivors for probably 15 to 16 years. Uh, I um, founded the Alliance of Hope back around 2008 um, at a point where I noticed uh, that there was a void in support for suicide loss survivors. Uh, My stepson ended his life in 1995, Mm -hmm. and I, at that point, didn't have any idea what had hit our family. It was like a grenade went off. And looking back now, I can see that there wasn't anything that prepared me in my graduate school education. We had never even touched on suicide loss. We get uh, calls all the time from people uh, who are trying to find somebody who understands suicide loss. They ask for referrals to counselors. And many people have a counselor that they've worked with before uh, for other issues, but, and they like their counselor, but they say, my counselor just, just doesn't really understand or I've tried a counselor and they really don't get it. So yeah, it is a very specific kind of grief. So Lonnie, what are the specific things that make it different and unique to, to another, kind of, another kind of sudden loss? Uh, a number of things, I think. Uh, n- number one, it's very traumatic. It's, it's a different kind of grief. You know, my mother passed away just short of her 91st birthday and I loved her very much. She was an extraordinary person. And I got to care for her when she was ill. And I was able to be complete. So when she died, I missed her terribly. And I grieved her. But it wasn't a traumatic loss in the way that a shocking loss is. Um, You know, whether people find the body or many people even actually witness the suicide, uh, if, if they don't, they're imagining what happened. So the idea that someone is going to end their life is just really outside of everything that we're programmed to think about. So a suicide often involves 
some form of violence. And it leaves people with a grief that is uh, larger, I would say larger than other grief because it contains components of post-traumatic stress disorder. So the emotions that someone feels after that kind of loss are very powerful, often extremely debilitating. Uh, and we have a lot of uh, anxiety, sometimes flashbacks, uh, generalized anxiety, all a powerful anger, uh, powerful despair, bordering on suicidal ideation in the first month after a suicide, those closest are almost 10 times more likely to have suicidal thoughts than the general public. It doesn't mean they necessarily act on them. I don't want people to be frightened, but, but that's how painful the grief is. People don't know how to get outside of their own skin. You know, it's interesting because uh, we've taught, and I've talked before uh, about the fact that Oftentimes we have thoughts of wanting to join the person, but we don't have a plan. So they're not really suicidal thoughts. So that's gotta be a lot of mix up in those normal thoughts of wanting to be with them and the thoughts of really doing something active. So mm -hmm. just to let people know it is normal. There is some normalcy of wanting to be with the person. But if you said to them, oh, are you thinking about killing yourself? They would be like, oh, no, 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 I'm not thinking about that. So that's one thing to check in with people, isn't it? Whether they're really thinking about it. Why yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, when I founded the Alliance of Hope, I did it for several reasons. One was I felt there was a void in support for this population. But the second was, I, I really didn't want to work with people who were suicidal. It had been too traumatic for me. And I didn't really, suicide prevention is such a complicated issue. Uh, it, it's such a compl complex issue. So I thought we would be doing grief support. And then people began to arrive on our, we have a clinically moderated forum that operates like a 24-7 support group. And people began to operate, uh, to, I'm sorry, to arrive on our forum and they would be suicidal. But the people that we deal with, so we see suicidal individuals all the time. We see people who express that they're suicidal. We refer them out for uh, real-time care. Uh, but the people that we see who are suicidal are suicidal because they've been through such a traumatic occurrence. And there is something about a suicide that seems to uh, open the door for us to be thinking about it even more, I think. A possibility. So a very debilitating grief, the profound trauma. And then you have, uh, I think, a, a scarcity of resources. Uh, you might have support groups. Most of the resources that exist for suicide loss survivors have been grassroots efforts. Uh, as is Alliance of Hope, it was really, it was born out of the survivor community. Uh, survivors reaching out to other survivors and letting them know that uh, we understand, we've been through it, we made it through, we're here for you, you're not alone, you can make it through too. We're, you don't have to go through this alone because there's a very profound sense of isolation that accompanies all of these other things. One of the things that I have noticed uh, in regards to uh, suicide is that sometimes uh, people aren't sure whether it was suicide or not. And with spouses, one will think it was, one will say that wasn't, it was an accident, you know. And so there's a lot of questioning 
within a family system also can be a lot of questioning. It's not a cut and dried thing and people aren't really sure uh, at times whether or not it was a suicide. And so that can create a, a lot of um, a lot of dissonance and a lot of things that need to be talked about. Yes, and and to take that even a little bit further, even if people are in agreement about it being a suicide, you will have different narratives about the why. So one of the tasks that survivors are faced with after a suicide is to create a narrative about what happened. It's the why of it all, and what happened of it all. And it's not something they do, you know, lickety-split. They don't do it right away. Generally, it's evolving. But one of the things that I've seen is that the quality of the narrative also gives them the future that they live into. It's the story we tell to ourselves or to other people. It's what we say about what happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they have to take, it, they take that into the future. I, I like that thought about that you are taking that into the future and developing, developing that story. That gets me into uh, the thought of complicated grief because Catherine Shear, uh, if you know her at Columbia University, the psychiatrist is very involved in complicated grief. Uh, what she does is have people tell their story over and over again and tape it and she listens to it and they keep developing uh, that story. And I think it's what you're talking about, taking it into the future. What are we going to take in? What do you think, Kai? I think that the story is really, really important because it's often not what happened to us, it's the perception of what happened to us. And I think over time, our stories can also change and transform and evolve. So, but, but you know what's interesting, Ronnie? I, I found that, that the thing that when I work with families and, and have friends that have had a suicide, the thing they find annoying, and I don't blame them, is that people are kind of like voyeurs. They want to know how exactly it happens. And then once they find, this, once they find that information out, sometimes they don't, they're done. They don't want to talk about anything else. And the reality is, for everybody out there, we want to talk about how people lived, not how they died. Do you find that there is more interest in finding out how they actually took their life than other types of, of death or not really? I, I honestly don't know. I do know that there is that voyeuristic quality that you're talking about that's present. I think many times people don't know what to say mm -hmm. and survivors are so wounded that saying the wrong thing can really be painful. Um, there is something that I do with lost survivors. And by the way, we distinguish between suicide attempt survivors and suicide loss survivors. It used to be until a few years ago that people would just call everyone suicide survivors. But I think that as we've evolved to call them suicide loss survivors makes it clear what somebody is dealing with. Um, one of the things that I've done with many uh, loss survivors is uh, help them to create a way of talking about the loss. Uh, it's a narrative very similar to what people often call the elevator speech, that thing that you can say to somebody when you're riding up in an elevator if you're looking for a job. You kind of get clear about what you want to say. It's about 30 seconds. And I, uh, I don't, I never have simply said my stepson killed himself. I, I, I don't, 
say that and then leave somebody or my stepson committed suicide. I don't say that and then let somebody else make up their story. What I say is, my stepson was a brilliant young man. He was a junior at Stanford University when he died. He developed bipolar disorder, a genetic disease at the age of 16. He fought it valiantly for five years, fell into a deep depression, ended his life. It was a devastating loss for all of us. I'm so happy you gave our audience the words. And I, and I really like the way you said he would start it out with he was a brilliant young man. That is really wonderful to people start. People are, more, people are more than how they ended their life. Most of the people are just extraordinary people who have contributed to our lives. They're amazing people. And we see every day that there's a memorial wall on our website. You can see every day how extraordinary these people are. And, and then something happened and they lost hope or they had some complications with drugs or developed some issue that they just couldn't deal with. But that, speaking that way, puts the lost survivor in control. So what I tell people is, especially if your grief is new and somebody comes up and says, what happened? Or like, they, they should feel free to say, you know, I'm sorry, it's just too painful to talk about right now. They get to talk about whatever they want to talk about. You don't have to be rude and just say, I'm sorry, it's too painful. Mm -hmm. Or have something put together that when you speak it, that creates the reality about what's going to happen. I like it. I, I was just thinking that you could almost break it down into three parts. One, you talk about, you get to talk about them. Then two, you can talk about, if you want to, maybe about uh, they suffered for years or whatever, if you want to put that piece in, but you talk about them. And then the closing of it, you talked about really missing him. And so those three parts, I think you validate them, you tell a little bit of the story, and you validate yourself and your feelings. It's a beautiful thing. Yes, and actually, you know, taking my dog to the dog beaches where I really kind of uh, refined this, this method because you have so many conversations with strangers. And what I found was invariably, and I mean invariably, after I would say that, people would say, I'm so sorry for your loss. I lost my sister, or my brother-in-law ended his life, or the neighbor's 13-year-old took her life last summer. They'll then, in that opening, they then step in and share something that they might not have shared. Mm -hmm. you, give so, them, you give them permission to talk about it. I founded the Alliance of Hope about a little over 10 years ago. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to alter the, the culture, alter the conversation, the predominant conversation in the culture that surrounded suicide. From you never get over it, you just learn to live with it. You've joined the club no one wants to belong to. I wanted to alter that and say, instead of you never get over it, and of course, if you lose a child, you never get over it. I understand all of that. But I wanted to create something that had more possibility. So we changed the conversation to forever altered, able to survive, and even eventually go beyond just surviving, have happy, meaningful, and contributory lives. We have a new website at allianceofhope.org that was funded by the Funeral Services Foundation. We just launched it last uh, October that has a wealth of resources and information about suicide loss. 
Um, we also run a clinically moderated, moderated by a mental health professional and a team of about 25 moderators and stewards. Uh, we run an online forum at forum.allianceofhope.org. Uh, and that operates like a 24-7 support group. We have over 15,000 members, people who have joined. Uh, for everyone that joins, our consultants estimate that there are about seven to 10 who are reading the forum but don't join. Mm -hmm. uh, we receive hundreds of messages every year from people who participate in that forum saying that it's their lifeline or that it saved their life. We did a uh, uh, controlled content analysis of reviews that were left and over 36% of the people spontaneously used the word save my life or lifeline. Wow. Um, I have mothers who've lost children who tell me that that's the first thing they do when they get up in the morning. They go there and they get their cup of coffee and then they stay online all day long. So people can use it as adjunctive support between support group meetings or between counseling sessions, but it's there all the time. Um, it's very closely moderated so that we are looking for anybody who's suicidal and supporting them. Uh, we uh, we really refrain from graphic language or imagery, uh, and it's a very kind and compassionate place. So if a parent comes in and says, my 13-year-old just ended his life, or my 20-year-old, or my 40-year-old, whatever it is, uh, or a spouse comes in, there will be other people from all over the English-speaking world who will then respond to their post, mm -hmm. and they're really surrounded. Uh, so it's a very unique place. It's a, a very diverse community uh, united by this uh, invisible bond of, of a common loss. And um, many people have called it a sacred place of connection. I honestly don't know too many other places in the world these days where we have, you know, so many people fighting about whatever they're fighting about, uh, where people can just come together and it's a culture of kindness. How fantastic. What a fabulous resource, isn't it, Hyde? I mean, I, I am, I love it. It's fantastic. I love, I love the culture, the culture of kindness. I think that's so wonderful that you have that, Ronnie. Thank you. And then we're actually, we actually do quite a bit of other things. We do distance consultations through Zoom, Zoom video with people who um, have lost someone and can't find local counselors. Uh, we've been training funeral directors in uh, understanding and betting, better servicing uh, suicide loss survivors. Uh, we have a newsletter that goes out once a month. Um, so we do, we're doing a number of other things. We work with researchers to help them, uh, I don't know if procure is the right word, but pro, yeah. you know, to, to get a sample of people. So we, you know, we're busy. You are. Well, thank you so much for everything you're doing. It's, it's amazing. Uh, uh, what a fabulous resource. The internet's a, a wonderful thing to be able to link people up together. And, yeah. and it's so important for people not to be alone and to reach out for help. So thank you for everything you're doing. And the same back to you. You guys are doing some amazing stuff in terms of making things available to people, letting people know. I think connecting people with information and with other people who understand is so important. It's so healing. And that's what you're doing. Thank you, Ron. Thank you for providing hope to so many. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
And thanks everybody for watching the show today and listening to our podcast and Heidi and I, and I'm sure Ronnie want to remind all of you that if you've lost hope, please lean on ours till you find your own and God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation, where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.